Garrett. Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now 80 years old. In 1959, we entered Harvard as Negroes, but graduated as Blacks and African Americans. Our guest is Mount Holyoke College professor Patricia Banks. Her new book is titled Black Culture, Inc., How Ethnic Community Support Pays for Corporate America. I'm joined by 17 of my classmates. I'm Bill Collins. I live in Aiken, South Carolina. Been here a little over 30 years. Came here to work at the Savannah River site after many years in the Navy. And I'm retired. Uh, I'm Doug Shapiro. I, I currently live in uh, Louisville. Uh, I've, I guess you could say I retired three times. Uh, one as a practicing physician and a second time as a uh, behavioral ecologist studying coral reef fish and a third time as a physician working in the pharmaceutical industry. I'm Ann Huberman, class of 63. I was an academic librarian. I lived in Peterborough, New Hampshire, and now I'm a climate activist. Hi, uh, Pete DeLisavoy, and uh, I'm an editor and writer and was with SNCC after college, and I still work with SNCC. And on a hopeful note, I was talking to someone to a friend in Southwest Georgia in Albany, Georgia last night and the Warnock and Stacey Abrams yard signs are already reaching their distribution points down there. Oh, good, <laughs> that's good news. Yay, that's good. Uh, Alden Briscoe and I live just south of San Francisco uh, in San Mateo, California. Uh, my wife and I have a firm in which we consult with nonprofit organizations, and a number of them are particularly interested in corporate uh, support, and uh, so your topic is of great interest to us. Good morning, uh, Jerry Secundi. I'm in Pasadena, California. I've <clears throat> done a number of different things. I'm an environmental lawyer, but for about eight years, I was the treasurer of the Atlantic Richfield Foundation, which at the time was the largest corporate foundation in terms of giving to minority communities. So I'm very interested to hear what you're going to say. John Whitford. Hi, here in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I uh, edited an alumni publication for uh, about 20 years. And before that, I was in Chicago and New York area, also in journalism. Okay. And my, my, my uh, classmate wife is down in Ohio. She didn't come all the way back from the wedding yet. She's tending to her sister who just had surgery. Uh, Marcy. I'm <clears throat> living and working in New York City, uh, trying to counter disinformation and the rewriting of history in order to support bad policies today. Mm -hmm. And this is such a timely talk. This is thrilling. Um, can't wait. <laughs> okay, George. Hello, George Jones. I'm in Ann Arbor, as everyone obviously already knows. I'm a newlywed, not even a week yet. And <laughs> I'm serious, significant, seriously hoping that this time next year, I won't be a Canadian citizen. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I hear you. I hear you. I hope we all are. Yeah, right, right. Uh, Spencer. Hi, I'm Spencer Jordan, and I'm uh, 
down here in sunny Florida. And uh, I am a uh, historian, a writer, and uh, uh, advocate, uh, devotee of sustainable development on the every day. It's the uh, news is hitting. We've passed 1.5. We can't get back to it. What are we going to do? Well, we're going to have weekly meetings here that buck us all up. <laughs> okay. All right. David. Hi, uh, I'm David Lelyveld, uh, class of 63. I'm a historian of India. I retired from teaching about seven years ago, I guess. And uh, But I'm still working away on uh, that. But I'm mostly in the 19th century you know, when corporations uh, uh Actually, I, I think the first big corporation was the East India Company, so there is a connection there. Hey, I'm uh, uh, John McCluskey, peeking in from the class of 66. I'm in Bloomington, Indiana, where I've been for about uh, 30 years. Uh, retired professor of African-American studies in English. Uh, writer when I can, <laughs> which is never enough time to do that. Um, photographer, gardener. Uh, and eager to hear what, uh, hear the conversation today, be a part of the conversation today. Great. And George Allen, is that you? It is. Um, I'm a semi-retired lawyer. I guess that's what you say when you only have one client left. Uh, <laughs> I'm on the west side of Los Angeles where it's cloudy so far, but it will probably, uh, the marine layer will probably burn off and it will be better today. And I must say that uh, most of my family are Quebecois, uh, and I was married once in Canada. Uh, I hope that, that would give me uh, a base to get back into Canada. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I my backpack. Now we go to you, Professor. Thank you for joining us, and uh, tell us about your book. Great. Well, good afternoon, and thanks so much for the invitation, Kent. It was my honor and delight to talk with everyone today. Uh, why don't I start out by just telling you a little bit about my research, and then I'll uh, talk a little bit about my new book, Black Culture, Inc. So as a cultural sociologist, my research looks at how social boundaries, such as those related to race and ethnicity, intersect with consumption and consumption-related processes. So uh, I've done research on art collectors, um, on individuals who support museums, and then this is my fourth book, uh, Black Culture Inc., which is looking at philanthropy and sponsorships uh, by corporations. So in Black Culture Inc., I use the case of corporate support of Black culture to understand ethnic community support, which is philanthropy and sponsorships related to racial and ethnic minorities. While a common understanding of ethnic community support is that it is altruistic, what I find is that it is partly self-interested. Black Culture Inc. shows how companies use ethnic community support as a form of what I call diversity capital to signal that they value racial and ethnic minorities. For example, in the last chapter of Black Culture Inc., I discuss how in the wake of the racial protests in the summer of 2020, companies used gifts to the National Museum of African American History and Culture to signal that they cared about Black people and racial equality. In many cases, ethnic community support is a win-win for companies as well as nonprofits and other recipients. 
by supporting racial causes, companies convey an image that they care about equity and the public benefits in ways such as getting more access to black art and culture. But it's also important to remember that there can be a cost. In some cases, ethnic community support conveys a racial image of companies that is partly at odds with reality. For example, in one chapter in Black Culture Inc., I look at sponsorship of the Cool Jazz Festival, which was one of the biggest Black music festivals in the 1970s and 1980s. The festival was sponsored by Brown and Williamson, which was one of the biggest tobacco companies in the United States at the time. Brown and Williamson was also the maker of the cool brand of menthol cigarettes. Even though cigarettes were known to be harmful to health, the company used sponsorship of the Cool Jazz Festival to convey an image that they cared about the Black community. Today, companies continue to use ethnic community support as a form of diversity capital. Uh, and so uh, you all probably saw some of the uh, the, the news about the FDA's potential ban of menthol cigarettes. So that is something uh, that's quite relevant uh, in terms of ethnic community support because we see some of those companies uh, using uh, black community support as a form of diversity capital. So Black Culture Inc. then is a book that provides insight on some of the big questions that we're all grappling with right now, such as what is the potential and what are the limits of corporations to solve social problems and what is the role of philanthropy in social change? Um, to my mind, uh, I see this focus on getting rid of... of um, menthol cigarettes as if it's some sort of uh, uh, gesture of interest in black people's health. I think see it as the same kind of action as what you're describing when they brought it in in the first place. In other words, it's just another form of virtue signaling because it doesn't really uh, do anything to address the uh, primary health problems and the and the woeful um, uh, medical and healthcare system we have. So it's just it's just another uh, empty gesture. And I find it also a little bit uh, um, patronizing and condescending that people would have to think you need some special um, ordinances and rules for black people's health as if that's uh, a different kind of health problem than one affecting the whole country. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really interesting when you start to think about it. So right now you have, uh, you know, the FDA, you have uh, some civil rights groups, you have some health groups that are on one side and they're supporting the menthol ban. And then you have some of the big tobacco companies who um, do not support the ban. They don't support the ban. And so, um, you know, as I was kind of noting before, there's a really, there's a very long history of, uh, these the, the big tobacco companies really directing uh, menthol cigarettes to African Americans. And one of the ways that they are using uh, philanthropy and sponsorships is that they use it to convey 
this image that they are care about and that they're concerned about the African-American community. So it's interesting when we kind of start to think about the, the really long history uh, where we've seen companies uh, do this. Well, which are the uh, really b- bad companies, I mean, in your view, which are, which are the ones that are the most outrageous, would you say? You know, so I, you know, again, so for my research, I'm just really, uh, I'm, I'm really interested in how philanthropy and how sponsorships, how they are a tool for shaping the racial images of companies. And so one of the companies right now, which is a really kind of fascinating case is Altria, which is the parent company of Philip Morris uh, USA. And so uh, Philip Morris itself uh, has a a very, very long history of supporting uh, Black art and culture. So if we look back in the past, they've supported Alvin Ailey. uh, And then today, Altria Company, which again is the parent company of Philip Morris, supports Black culture, such as the National Museum of African American History and Culture. So they're one of the companies that uses it today. But I think one of the important things to remember is that uh, this is a practice that's used across industries. Uh, But the tobacco companies, of course, are in the news right now. And so that's why it's a particularly interesting case. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jerry. Um, a little bit of background first. Uh, I worked for 28 years with Atlantic Richfield's company, Arco. It doesn't exist anymore. It was sold to BP in 2000. But in the 1970s and 1980s, it was the 12th largest corporation in the United States. And we founded the Arco Foundation, which at that time was the largest corporate foundation. We gave away 40 to $50 million a year. There were six of us that met once a month and reviewed two to 300 requests for funding mostly from minority communities. And we really spent a great deal of time making certain that our money was being spent well. Now, having said that, there's no question that the company itself was not particularly well integrated. With 50,000 employees, there were about 100 that were, quote, on the executive payroll. I was fortunate enough to be one of the 100, along with one other Black person. So two out of 100 is what it amounted to. It was a very conservative company, but it was not monolithic. There were people that really felt that we should be giving to the minority communities. And we spent a lot of time doing that is what it amounts to. So when you're saying that there's an ulterior motive, yes, it gave us good press. There's no question about that. But was also these grants were really sincerely made. I know that because I was one of the ones making the grants is what it amounted to. And frankly, most of these smaller minority entities would not have survived without the funding of Atlantic Richfield Company. Thank you for sharing that. And yeah, I think it's a, it's a really it's really important to remember uh, how there are these uh, multiple kind of sides of of this phenomenon. So in many cases, I think you're correct that uh, the money is going to, uh, in the case of nonprofits, organizations that are doing very important work in the communities, and it is helping them to do the work. So I, in many ways, it is it is a, a public benefit. Um, in some cases, when you're looking at companies uh, that are producing what are sometimes called vice products, and the philanthropy and sponsorships are ways to uh, kind of promote those, 
you know, then there can be a cost. But I think you, you make uh, a very important point by uh, providing insight on uh, the human beings who were involved in making some of the grants, their intentions, and then also what the impact is. George uh, Jones? So I'm not sure whether or not this is within the purview of your research, Professor Banks, but one of the issues that has concerned me for some time is that it is my impression, and I admit freely that that's all it is because I have no data to support what I'm about to say, but it is my impression that Black entrepreneurs don't support the interests of the Black community to the same degree that white corporations and entrepreneurs do. So the Koch brothers, for example, is a prime prime example, but there are plenty of others on both the liberal and conservative sides of the aisle. But my question is, what's Jay-Z doing? What's Michael Jordan doing? What's LeBron James doing? What's Oprah doing? And are there any is there any consideration when they, when and if they think about these things, about again the same kind of thing that we've been talking about that there is, are positive outcomes that will accrue to them as well as to the recipients of their largesse. Thank you. So, so it's a, it's a very interesting, and I think it's an important question. So to think about. Um, African-American entrepreneurs. So in Black Culture, Inc., I I don't specifically look at Black entrepreneurs, uh, but in my second book, Diversity and Philanthropy at African-American Museums, which looks at individuals who support African-American museums, uh, I do look at uh, some African-Americans who are uh, very wealthy, who are art patrons. So it's really interesting when we look at Smithsonian uh, major donors to the Smithsonian, so giving a million dollars or more. What's really interesting is that when you look at where uh, donors are giving who are African-American, what we see is that they're concentrated. Uh, they're concentrated supporters of the National Museum of African-American History and Culture. So uh, at Oprah Winfrey, for example, she was one of the two largest individual donors of that museum. The other largest individual donor was Robert Smith, and uh, both of them gave in the $20 million and above category. So that is a, a provides some insight on, on what uh, we see African-Americans who are very wealthy, um, what we see there. Uh, cultural patronage looking like, and more broadly, their philanthropy. I think it's an important question uh, to look at with the, uh, because it's one thing you can look at an individual donor, but I also, yeah, I think it would be really interesting moving forward to look at Black-owned businesses as a whole, so uh, business to uh, nonprofit support. And uh, there, there, we just really have very little research on that. Uh, I, I noted in the beginning that my research agenda looks at race, ethnicity, and consumption. And uh, I should note that historically, when sociologists have looked at uh, cultural patronage and even more broadly, uh, philanthropy, they haven't tended to look at racial and ethnic minorities. Uh, And so part of my research agenda has been to better understand how race and ethnicity does intersect. So uh, I think it's a promising area of research, but we don't know um, a great deal right now. 
Alden. Well, thanks very much. Uh, from a philanthropic point of view, as you well know, there are two, tend to be two budgets uh, in corporations. One is a foundation, uh, which uh, despite what Jerry said, often is quite separate from the, from the company. And then there's, a, there's the uh, marketing budget. And the marketing budget is purely for, we want to get our name involved in whatever the organization is. Can, can you talk a little bit about the, the differences that you've seen in, uh, in, in that, in the expenditures from those two different pots? Yeah, so again, so it's an interesting, so yes, so this, that's an important point and thank you for sharing that. Uh, you know, so that's something I'm kind of looking at in some of my newer research. I'm, I'm starting to look at some of the different pots of money. But what's interesting, what I found is that uh, you find even with the foundation, you'll find even gifts from foundations do get used as a form of diversity capital. Um, and one of the ways you can tell is that when you look at the press releases, for example, they'll note very specifically, this is a gift from our corporate foundation. So that's what's that's particularly interesting is that uh, it, it both pots of money. So uh, money that uh, technically we would see more as the marketing, but also the, the foundation dollars, you do see them being used as a form of diversity capital. Uh, Spencer. Yes, uh, uh, starting with uh, what uh, John said earlier uh, and uh, marrying that with uh, Professor Banks, uh, there seems to be a, uh, a possible way of analyzing uh, pretty much what you then responded, Patricia, to him of that there's a one aspect is philanthropy and another aspect is reparations. So uh, we, there are those as uh, Gerald uh, pointed out who uh, companies are not uh, uh, directly, uh, have, there's a gradation of, of uh, positive and negative effects. And so I see a progressive grid of uh, analyzing uh, and I wanted to know what you thought about that. If there's a, a, a matrix, Patricia, that we could, uh, that you could develop uh, on uh, grading, you know, the, the corporations and their degree of impact on the black community or the communities of color and, or any oppressed uh, communities, and then a segment of how <laughs> their, their support could be judged and then requested. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Or reparations. <laughs> Thank you. That's that's a really fascinating way to think about it. That's an absolutely fascinating way to think about it. And uh, you know, in some cases, it, there it is almost you, you see what I call in the book a racial image crisis. So you have companies who have a racial image crisis. And uh, what they will do in response is they will engage in philanthropy. Uh, so you have, for example, some of the insurance companies whose predecessor companies were involved in slavery uh, and that 
you know, become part of the public discourse. And then there's a gift to support a black cause. So in many ways, I think that kind of fits with what you're uh, thinking about in terms of reparations. So there has been what the public sees as a harm that's taken place. They see the company as causing that harm. So the company, uh, their, their image is spoiled. They've got this spoiled racial image. And then philanthropy becomes a way to, uh, to protect that image, to rebuild that image, to regain legitimacy. Uh, so I certainly think that's the case. And then on the other hand, you also have these companies who uh, haven't, their, their racial image is fine, uh, but they are trying to market to African-Americans. They're trying to reach out to them. Um, and so in that sense, that can also be uh, something that's driving the behavior. So that, yeah, that's a very interesting to think about it um, in terms of uh, reparations. David. Uh, thanks uh, for this uh, talk and also the questions have anticipated what I was wondering about, which is the audience for this image making. And some part of it is uh, marketing and, uh, and such to a, uh, a black audience uh, uh, as consumers, uh, but I'm wondering how much of it is uh, uh, in the line with reparations and, and such and actually all our discussions in the last uh, couple of weeks about Harvard and its uh, uh, reparations, um, how much of it is uh, to make um, uh, the uh, powers that be in the white community feel good about themselves and uh, to reassure them uh, that they are uh, uh, not doing bad things or haven't done bad things. Uh, uh, so who who is the object of the of the image making? And I, I guess it's not an either or thing, but uh, uh, I wonder uh, uh, what you think about that. Yes, thank you. And I think you're right. It, it is. I think you're right. It's not an either or thing. I think there are multiple audiences and I think that the audiences is going to depend to a certain degree on the company. It's also going to depend on a certain degree on the particular gift. Uh, but you're correct. I think in some instances, it is specifically directed at African-Americans. We're trying to cultivate our African-American consumer base. In other cases, it's more broadly to the public at large and stakeholders um, as a whole. Uh, you know, it's one of, one of the interesting things I, I talk about in the introduction of Black Culture, Inc., is I talk about the fact that... Uh, you know, one of the, the, the changes that's taken place, uh, you know, in the United States across the decades is that uh, while there's certainly still racial discrimination, negative stereotypes, negative prejudice, um, if we look at surveys of racial attitudes, uh, they've changed over time. And so if we look at uh, you know, kind of the general population, there's more openness too. And so if you uh, are a company who wants to be seen in good regard um, by a broad consumer base, uh, you know, being seen as uh, racially discriminatory is not going to be helpful for any of the um, any of those stakeholders. So uh, in that sense, there is also a need more generally for companies to uh, signal to the public at large that they are uh, racially inclusive, that they're racially just and on. 
So first I would say, yes, as a cultural sociologist, um, I am interested in meaning, language, and symbols. And so that's actually what brought me to want to study the symbolic aspect of this. Uh, in the book, I talk about something called diversity framing. Um, and diversity framing is it's the language, it's the words, it's the images, it's the sounds uh, that are kind of embedded in text that shape our understandings of them. And so what I argue is that uh, what we have is, you know, a gift gets made. So you have this material transfer of resources, but then it's the diversity framing in the discourse about the gifts. So in the press releases, in uh, the blog posts, et cetera, it's the diversity framing. It's the language that reinforces that symbolic meaning. So I absolutely agree that the words, uh, words are, 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 are central to this process. When we start to think about philanthropy, it's not just the material transfer resources, but it's the, uh, it's, it's the language around it. So I would agree with you on that, that that's uh, very important. I also think that your comment uh, speaks to uh, one of the last questions that I, that I brought up at, at the end of my introduction, where I, I said that, you know, what Black Culture Inc., kind of asks us to consider is what is the potential and what are the limits of corporations to solve social problems? And so what you were sharing was that you have a, a lot of faith in uh, corporations in some ways to uh, address social problems. And I think this also speaks to one of the first comments that we had, which asked us to uh, consider and just to be attentive to the uh, you know, the good that, that, that these gifts are doing. And, you know, one example of that is when we look at the National Museum of African American History and Culture, which is uh, widely regarded as a cultural treasure for the nation and the world. And corporate donors made that, uh, they, they helped to make it possible. Uh, there are many corporations who gave uh, many, uh, who gave million dollar donations. And so, uh, that's part of the reason that the public is able to enjoy that museum. Uh, John Woodford. Well, we live in a time where there's greater uh, wealth inequity and uh, more problems with uh, widespread poverty in our country, uh, especially compared with the wealth it has than ever before, while the corporations have gained in wealth and influence. So I can't see, looking at that, how I should be encouraged to think that the increased power of corporations is somehow really going to benefit uh, poor people or just, you know, regular common people. It's just not happening. The, the reverse is happening. You can look at Shell Oil can brags, brags about what it does in giving too. Then you look over at dumping the oil in uh, Nigeria. I mean, but we, you know, we're looking at the Amazon with the various companies uh, poisoning that. So I don't see that the power of the corporation is anything that's indicating now that we're going to come out better than what has been was getting worse. Also, black families, if you look at figures on the study of giving, black families throughout the country give, I believe it's about 25% more, even though they don't have as much wealth. They give 25% more uh, per for their wealth they have than, um, than uh, white families. 
not to knock what white families are doing. I'm just pointing out that the question of giving and generosity and philanthropy uh, goes a lot further than just looking at what corporations or even what very rich people do. And I'll just close by saying that the, the Cokes and the other very, very rich people, they have uh, what Oprah and these people have is just a, a drop in the bucket. Uh, uh, maybe I wish these rich blacks would consolidate their forces somewhat and and to get an organization, but really, um, you know, rich person by rich person, they don't have a rich person who uh, has anything like the Cokes or their family. Thank you for sharing that. And so speaking to your last comment about philanthropy among African-Americans, I think that's, that is an incredibly important point to bring up. Uh, this past summer, I was involved in helping to work on the donors of color um, report, which was a report that was looking at philanthropy among communities of color, so African-Americans, Asian-Americans, and on. And uh, you're correct that uh, when we start to think about philanthropy, it is so important to think about philanthropy as taking place among communities of color and also taking place by people who are not wealthy because there are many ways to engage in philanthropy. There are many ways to give um, and it can mean giving money to friends and family. It can mean giving uh, mutual aid as a form of giving. And so when we start to think about philanthropy in a broad way, it absolutely goes beyond corporations and big gifts. So I think that's an important point. And then I think your first point, um, it's helpful. So you're, you're helping us, reminding us of the, the other side of uh, companies and addressing social problems and uh, the way that I think the big tobacco companies, I think that speaks uh, kind of nicely to that point. And where we see, uh, in this case, we, we see companies whose uh, products uh, are scientifically proven in many ways to cause harm. Um, and the philanthropy becomes a way to counteract that image. So I think your, your comments help for, to, you know, kind of keep our eye on that. <laughs> Uh, who's, uh, David, you have something? Uh, yeah, I want to just mention the, uh, uh, economics of, uh, philanthropy, uh, is that, uh, uh, it, uh, helps as a tax, uh, deduction, mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and as opposed to the very low taxes that are placed on corporations and on wealthy people, so that, uh, 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 it is, uh, it seems to me, uh, in the economic interests of uh, companies to uh, uh, set up a situation where they can uh, have uh, some of the benefits of uh, philanthropy without uh, the pain of really contributing to sufficiently to the public interest. Thank you for sharing that. So yes, that's absolutely. It's another. It's it, it's another way that companies do gain from from giving. So giving is uh, something that helps them. You know, Black Culture Inc. shows how it helps them with respect to their racial image. But uh, just when you give money from uh, the foundation, there's also the material interest, the direct material interest as well. So thank you for sharing that. I mean, are you saying that that these companies? should not be giving the money, or are you saying that some of these organizations should not be accepting the money? Which you is know, 
Yeah, thank you so much for that question. So, you know, um, I, my Black Culture Inc. is really, it's it's not a, a book that is about uh, making a statement about what donors should do or what recipients are do, should do. It's really a book that's designed to help us understand what we see happening with the gifts, uh, in some cases, which I think your, your question speaks to, is in some cases, uh, there is a negative impact on some groups of stakeholders. Uh, and so I think what Black Culture Inc. does is it helps us to see that. I think the question about who uh, sh should nonprofits accept these gifts, should other recipients accept these gifts, uh, should companies give them? I think that's a bigger set of questions. I think that's a bigger set of questions, but I think Black Culture Inc. helps us to understand uh, the kind of context in which these gifts are occurring and uh, what their motivations are. Mm -hmm. Jerry. Again, as we look at corporations and whether you want to paint them with a black hat or a white hat, it very much depends on who is leading that corporation. I talked about the Arco Foundation in the mid-70s and mid-80s, and that was led by Thornton Bradshaw and Robert Anderson, who were the chairman and president of the company. They retired, new people took over. One of the first things they did was dissolve the foundation. And instead of giving to these small, um, ethnic, ethnically diverse uh, agencies, uh, they wanted to just write a $10 million check to the opera or to the local symphony, et cetera. It was easy for them. And it was very white uh, dominated is what it amounted to. So again, it depends on who is that leadership, who is pushing it. And I can tell you that Anderson and Bradshaw really wanted to help uh, the minority communities. The new leaders could have given a damn is what it amounted to. Thank you. That's, yeah, it's really helpful to, to hear uh, the, the side from a person who was directly involved in making those grants. It's really helpful, uh, adds another layer. Thank you. Spencer. Yeah, um, this is a really a great conversation, Patricia. This is uh, a ter terrific uh, topic to have investigated. And uh, I was involved in black economic development back in the sixties when it was first formulated and working with the, with the Congressional Black Caucus. And now with reparations uh, uh, as the issue, I think there is a tremendous difference in the ask of our community that the very word philanthropy means a thanks for giving something that is a gift. And reparations means repay of something that we've already earned and that all, the, all corporations uh, in varying degrees have benefited from. I think it makes a great difference in terms of what a next step might be. You could think about that. I'd love to hear your, your, your idea, response to that. Your idea, not now, but I mean, just thinking about it, uh, that the psychic difference of the black community now is crucial of us taking possession of what we have meant to the, uh, the country and the world. And also the, uh, the uses to which it is, is put so that an overall uh, concept that's sweeping the country now about repair and restoration means the nature of the requests that we're making and the 
response of the companies as to their true sense of responsibility to participate. So I, I, I'd like to keep that idea alive and, and because these are crucial times and we are sweeping into an advance. I'm so energized about our community uh, that we are, yeah. So just that, I'll, I'll, I don't wanna talk too much. Thank you, so thank you for uh, that. I, and I think that that connects to the earlier comment about language and the importance of language. So here, again, there's this transfer of resources between these two parties and how do we make sense of it? How are we conceptualizing this? And so what you're asking us to consider is the reparation, so a harm has been done, repair versus philanthropy. It's just a person or an entity, an organization who is generous. So I, I, yeah, I think that's that's really interesting. And uh, that would be something where you could look at the language and you could look at uh, how uh, it's changed. And so your hypothesis is kind of like, um, as we've kind of gone across the decades, particularly getting to this moment, that there's been this shift in this understanding of transfer of resources um, to the African-American community from one of philanthropy, one of gift, one of generous benefactor to one of we are repairing because there's a sense that there's been a loss um, and there's an a group that you owe, you owe something. So yeah, I think that's really interesting. <laughs> Ezra, what are you thinking? Well, I'm thinking that, uh, you know, for my, for my own, my own purposes, I'm not sure, Professor, if, if you are following the money, so to speak, and, and trying to impute interpretations related to the generosity of giving, and I wonder for myself, I'd be more interested in, in how, how much research is there about the intentionality behind the giving. In, in, in other words, I'm, I'm curious about the donor's interest in, in a value system that obviously is unique to the donor. And I'm, I'm not sure when you follow the proxy, which is just the bunny, that you get at that. So I, I'm, never, I'm, I'm never sure what people really intend, whether they just want, you, you, you know, in, in, in dealing with the community when you walk around asking for money, as I've had to do for organizations that I've been involved in. You know, many of us are just happy to say, all right, so you want to give us $100. That's, that's fantastic. And we thank you very much for it. But for maintaining it, for maintaining it, for perpetuating it, I found certainly at the community level that it's also important to follow whether what the donor's intention is. Does the donor really have a commitment to the idea of how the gift is going to be used? And not everybody is interested in that because it takes it takes time. It takes staff time, particularly uh, for 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 an organization to follow up really on the outcome of the gift. Um, no, no, I agree. People follow. People also can follow up just to make sure that the gift isn't being wasted. But, but I, I've, but I've found when I go back the second time or the third time, um, it really helps if you can get a sense of what the donor, where is the donor's, where is the donor's mind, where is the donor's sense of 
of, of sort of morality, the sense of humanity in, in, the, in the act of giving, which is separate from just spending money. So I'm, 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 I'm just asking whether you have the information to clarify um, that, that distinction. Um, yes. let, me, let me just say something, Ezra. Um, in, in philanthropy, there's a fair amount of research on reasons why people give, particularly larger gifts. And there are a whole lot of different reasons. Well, I, uh, and there's some pretty, pretty good research on that. Uh, okay. Okay. Uh, thank you, Ezra, for that for that question. And for me, as a researcher, um, I, I'm I think about this in terms of some of my different projects. So for Black Culture Inc., I'm really looking at the projection of racial image. Um, another term that sociologists use is impression management. So. Uh, that uh, is what I'm focusing on there. In my book, Diversity and Philanthropy at African-American Museums, I do look at the motivation. So I, I interviewed over 80 supporters of African-American museums across the United States to get a sense of um, how they think about the value of these institutions, why they're supporting them. So um, in terms of understanding as a cultural sociologist, as a qualitative sociologist, um, in-depth interviews <laughs> is one way. So, you know, these hour long, 90 minute, two hour mm -hmm. interviews are one way. Um, the participant observation. So um, uh, going to these patron activities and, and, and observing. So those are some of the ways. I, I think it's an interesting question to think about another way to kind of think about what you mentioned is the authenticity of gifts. Like to what degree is this authentic? And I think when you're looking at projected image, one way we can think about authenticity is we can look at how consistent the giving is with other aspects of the company. So if we think about, you know, there's a lot of discussion now about corporate social responsibility and uh, the multiple stakeholders that companies uh, need to speak to. And so one of the things we can think about is you have philanthropy and if you're giving to support black causes, clearly the company there is doing well uh, in terms of racial and ethnic equality. But then we also wanna think about some of the other aspects. So what does diversity look like at employees level? What does diversity look like at the supplier level? So that's one of the ways I think that you can look at it if you're doing looking at the projected image because those are all public, you know, kind of forms of uh, ways that you as a researcher or other interested party can try to get a sense of that. Uh, Marcy. <laughs> um, some large and wealthy environmental groups take money um, from big Wall Street and real estate interests, and then in turn set up so-called environmental justice programs. <laughs> and then some of the recipients of those programs, money or work, in turn support environmentally damaging projects, policies, and spending priorities. Have you followed the money in cases like that? So that is absolutely fascinating, and no, I haven't. That that sounds like it's a that's a that's a should be a next research project. That is absolutely fascinating, what? absolutely fascinating to look at. 
you have these different parties um, and this, the, the money is kind of changing hands and ha- there's a different set of interests at all of those levels. So that sounds like that's a good next research project. <laughs> good. <laughs> I think that takes up with what George Allen was saying. I agree with him that signaling virtue is virtuous, you know, the signaling, the intent, even it's genuine. But then, of course, we know it can become a way of masking uh, things that are deceitful and it's, not, it's, and it's a front. So both all these things that you said, it's, it's a both and all these things can be going on at the same time. But as long as the, for, the corporations have the big edge they have in our society legally to be once they were declared to be individuals back with the railroads, uh, that means that when they're being supplicated when people go to them, as long as they have that kind of power, their power is unchanged, unaffected by uh, people coming to them uh, uh, seeking grants and, and gifts for this or that, because it leaves them with the influence in the society over our politics and lawmaking that they have enjoyed. And if we don't affect that, then they can dole out whatever you want to call it, whether it's virtual signaling or, you know, hush money, it has many different forms, but they are like a, uh, they're like a, a, a monarchy, they're like a monarch in our society. They have to be, their power has to be curbed, seems to me. Thank you. Thank you. That's a, that really builds nicely on Marcy's comment. Thank you. Well, I, I've been struggling. Uh, this is wonderful conversations, enlightening, informative. Uh, but I've been struggling throughout with the whole issue of time, and I don't know how to put the question. But it's it's talking. I'm talking about sustaining uh, gifts. Um, you can drop something like a comet, or like a meteor, a big fit splash. Uh, the Times Post uh, advertise it, and it's gone. Uh, three years later, the public has forgotten it. So, how? Who are the watchdogs? that uh, are there to, um, not, not, not necessarily to, to know or discover the intentionality of the giver, uh, but that the money is uh, sustained over time to make real difference, mm-hmm. whether in terms of social policy um, uh, or whatever down the line. I, I'll give you something and it's sort of off the, off the wall, but I think it, it bears from the from the uh, uh, edges some of what we're talking about. Um, the CIC uh, Minority Fellowships Program was uh, for Big Ten schools, uh, as they were called, um, and they're primarily for African Americans, uh, Hispanic Americans, and Asian Americans. Um, and these are gifts made to the universities to guarantee four years of graduate school. Uh, to increase the professoriate. And professoriate could go anywhere in, in the world. They wanted to go, but they were drawn nationally to these 10 universities. Um, as the, and I'm, I'm forgetting the name, and, and going, but going back to ARCO, the ARCO model, um, there were no quotas or anything like that. It's basically numbers and letters of recommendation. Um, but there, there's this, this wash, this tidal wave of information about model American, model ethnic groups. And they were talking about primarily the Asians, first generation. 
Um, and uh, one day the, the new boss came in and he said, look, um, I want the Asians out. Um, and we said, what are you talking about? And he said, well, they, they, it says here in Time Magazine and Newsweek that they are, are too strong, they're doing okay. So let's just look at the other two groups. Now to say that to uh, the, the Hispanic and the African-Americans, uh, because ethnicity is part of your title, um, it can, can send various signals uh, in terms of their own intellectual powers. And it came down to something very simple. Um, this foundation, Midwestern Foundation, one of three, including Mellon um, and, and Ford, uh, said, look, either you disqualify them, uh, they're no longer eligible, um, or we take our money. It was that blunt. And so in a subtle way, this consortium is probably 500 PhDs out there in the world, which is a great deal of intellectual power. Um, the, a colleague from Berkeley simply said, okay, you're looking at a lawsuit in due time. And lo and behold, that lawsuit uh, is drifting along toward the Supreme Court uh, in terms of uh, what is called preferential uh, whatever to, uh, to admissions. Uh, it's, it's, it's tied to who makes those kind of decisions. So it, it is, uh, I guess one question is who, 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 who will be the watchdog beyond intentionality that these are making an impact on the African-American community, just to speak, pick one community. Um, and uh, I don't know where that comes from, congressional level, um, uh, private level, community level, or, or where, but my, my issue, my concern is the sustained support of any, any philanthropical uh, gesture. Mm. Um, I haven't framed it exactly the way I want to do, but that, that, those are some thoughts sort of spinning around. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Um, so that, I, I, you know, as I was noting in the beginning that there's very little research on philanthropy through a racial lens. Uh, and so your topic, your question is actually gets right at the heart of uh, one of my new research projects, which is going to be tracing and what I've already done um, quite a bit so far, but it's ongoing is tracing uh, what we're seeing with corporations who gave in response to the 2020 uprisings. And so um, being able to look longitudinally to, to see uh, what the patterns are. So I, those, it, it's a very, very important question. Uh, what is the long-term impact? Uh, but we, as to date, there, there hasn't been a lot of research on that topic, but it is something that I am uh, taking up with with my research now. You know, I, I can tell you from, again, back to the Oracle Foundation, we did not give one-time gifts. For these smaller groups, we would look at on a five to six year basis. And if we would start with $50,000, for example, we would gradually wean them off. So by the sixth year or so, maybe we're giving them $20,000 and we were trying to get them to broaden their base of support over that time. But it was not a one and done. Uh, because we thought that simply wouldn't work. Mm -hmm. George. <clears throat> I, would, uh, I want to pick up the point uh, Jerry made 
quite a while ago about the difference between the marketing budget and the philanthropy budget and ask you, Professor, if you've thought about extending or broadening your net to look at uh, how the marketing money gets spent and what the messaging looks like in the marketing money uh, as distinguished from merely the philanthropic contributions, because it seems to me that the messaging and the marketing is probably multiples in terms of influence greater than the messaging in the philanthropic gifts. Uh, and, and, and I've seen some really great marketing, really terrible companies. I mean, you mentioned Altria. Uh, women's tennis would not have gotten where it is without Virginia Slims, but that was Philip Morris. Uh, and Billie Jean King recruiting them to sponsor women's professional tennis. Uh, so, uh, but they had a, their motive, I think, was to sell more cigarettes to women. Uh, eliminating menthol uh, is to try to eliminate a gateway because it's easier to get people started on smoking with menthol cigarettes than otherwise. And this is a global phenomenon. This isn't just the United States where this is consequential. Uh, in, in many ways, our tobacco settlement, which cost the tobacco companies ostensibly uh, multiple billions of dollars, uh, wound up being paid for by the third world. They just increased their production and their sales all over the world as their consumption dropped in the United States. So who wound up paying for uh, what it cost them to pay all the American states, all the money that they had to pay under the tobacco settlements. Well, that would be people in Nigeria uh, and elsewhere. But again, and, and my, my question is marketing and the messaging in marketing. Yes, thank you. So thank you for um, providing some of the history. I will say as I was doing some of the archival research for the Cold Jazz Festival, I would come across um, some of the documents for uh, Virginia Slim. So that that is a very uh, kind of fascinating history itself. So I, mean, I think your hypothesis is correct. So if we were to look specifically at the foundation money versus the other, um, as I was noting earlier, you do still see the uh, use of the foundation dollars for diversity capital. But I think your hypothesis is correct that we would expect that um, it would be even higher if we're looking at marketing budget. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. It was a pleasure to talk with everyone. Thank you, everybody. See you next week. Thanks, That was Mount Holyoke College professor Patricia Banks. Her new book is titled Black Culture, Inc., How Ethnic Communities Support Pays for Corporate America. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or from wherever you get podcasts. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard. <laughs>